0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next 3 years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare TriTerm term medical plans are available for these changing times. Hello and welcome to Saving Lives in Slow Motion. Today's topic is all about language. Language, language, language. It is how we communicate. It's what separates us from the animals. And it is something that is so important in... Every aspect of our life, you know, from reading books to, you know, watching a movie to speaking to your loved ones to accessing healthcare, it is really at the core of everything we do. If you just think about a particular language, you know, whether it's English or French or something else, you know, can you imagine the impact it would have if that language didn't exist all of a sudden or the nuances? in other languages that don't exist in your particular language and I'm going to look at that and how that has an effect on culture and also on our health. Language and health are intimately related and I'm going to be touching on something called narrative medicine um, which is something that's quite close to my heart. So I first became really interested in language and and I'm talking about my working life, not not school, where I was doing you know French and German and, and whatever. Um, really, when I I went to medical school and we were on the wards in different hospitals around London, and having grown up in a house where there were two languages that were being spoken. So my sort of second language, if you like, is Bengali. And I was acutely aware that if we were treating a patient whose first language wasn't English, that there were issues around communication and occasionally we'd have to use a translator. And and also transcultural issues. Um, th- there are certain words that don't exist in certain languages and there are certain ways of communicating your health issues depending on what your culture is and what your first language is. I'll talk a bit more about that, because I think that's a, a really fascinating area. But I want to start with a, a story about a chap that I met on the ward, a patient who was um, a schoolboy. And during a, a game of football between two schools, there was a clash during a tackle, and he and another boy uh, both suffered a fracture in their lower limb. Anyway, one of these two boys um, could barely speak English. He was an exchange student who was here from India, and he'd actually got a scholarship from a very poor village in rural India to a really, really prestigious boarding school over there, and was now on exchange at a boarding school in the UK. And because he was being looked after by the host school. Occasionally there'd be a member of staff who'd come in and sit with him and be on the ward with him but he definitely had no friends there and zero chance of having any family obviously because they were all in India. And the other lad um, was local. Y- you know it's interesting because we, we as doctors we treat everyone equally that is part of the premise of what good medical practice is. Um But one couldn't help feel slightly sorry for this chap who was, you know, alone and isolated. You know, it's pretty scary when you're 12, 13 years old and, you know, you're staying overnight in an NHS hospital and you've got sort of someone who's a guardian that's coming in now and again, but really you're on your own. Anyway, my consultant at the time and the team, that you know, as the team looking after him, initially thought he was being a bit sort of difficult and... And that was really because of the language barrier. He didn't really give clear signals on whether his pain relief was working or straight answers to medical questions. And then one day I I went on the ward and there was someone there to visit him. And it was a mentor from the school that he was on exchange at. And she said to me that he was in really low spirits. And also asked me rather randomly whether I spoke Bengali, which of course I do. And suddenly the lady who was accompanying him, you know, her eyes lit up and she said wow, would you be able to speak a few words of Bengali to him because that would absolutely make his day. And I remember being quite impressed with her insight. I was a bit perplexed because Bengalis have very specific types of names um, and and, you know, this chap's name wasn't Bengali, but that doesn't mean anything these days. You know, my name is Bengali, but I live in St Albans in Hertfordshire. So I don't know why I even thought that. But to uh, cut a long story short, I did say hello. How are you? How are you feeling? And the the immediate effect and the impact it had on his posture and his demeanour was just unbelievable. He was suddenly smiling, he was really engaged, he sat upright in bed. You know, not what we'd been seeing for the last couple of days. Um absolutely fascinating. And you know, the more I spoke to him, the more information I got from him about his life, um, what it was like being in hospital in a foreign country, what had actually happened on the day of the football match. And it gave me a lot of context in terms of how being in hospital was affecting him as a person. And I think being allowed to tell your story, you know, one of the things we do in medicine is we listen. such an important thing in communication. Even with something very orthopaedic and clinical, which is a fracture, you know, you can see it on an x-ray. It's not complicated in, in some ways. But what we've got to remember is that someone's gone through an experience... And it's, it is important to listen to that. And I'll, I'll come on to that a bit later on when we touch on, on narrative medicine and what that means. But, you know, while we're on language and while Bengali is in my mind, this is one of my digressions, I'm afraid, but hopefully you will find it interesting. What is fascinating is that there are some words in Bengali that there are no literal translations for in English. So the ones that spring to my mind just randomly, one of them is the word judge. And charge in Bengali means the sensation you get when you eat too much mustard or horseradish and it goes up your nose and makes your eyes water. So what's interesting is when my dad was alive, I asked him what one English word as an equivalent would be for charge, and his answer was pungent, which isn't quite right, actually. It's not bad, it's pretty close. And the other word that makes me laugh is a Bengali word called nakami. It's basically when you're feigning something or being deliberately coy. It's a bit like Usain Bolt going, oh, I've got no chance of winning this race, you know, when he's won four gold medals, you know. Um, But again, no one word for it. Uh, uh, One that I've used recently actually in writing is a French phrase called l'esprit d'escalier, which literally means the spirit of the stairs. And what that means in English is how you felt after you'd had an argument with someone and you should have said something in that argument but it's you'd left it too late actually it can just be a conversation and again just a beautiful kind of couple of words that sums that up without you having to kind of explain it anyway, digression over I guess the point I'm trying to make is that language is extremely powerful and varied and we mustn't underestimate it, which brings me on to narrative medicine, I said I'd touch on that and I want to talk a little bit about what that means, why it's important, and how it can affect our health. So I'm I'm going to talk a little bit about the work of Rita Chiron, who is a physician at Columbia University and really one of the main proponents of narrative medicine, along with John Lorna, who's one of my heroes, um, a UK-based NHS GP. Anyway, Rita Chiron um, talks about something called The Four Divides, and it's based on a potential disconnect between doctor and patient so the four divides that she talks about number one is the relation to mortality so the fact that when someone becomes ill it it what her feeling is is that it elicits certain emotions particularly you know the fear of death and dying and that needs to be taken into account when you are listening to the patient's story. The second is the context of illness. I I spoke a little bit earlier on about the lad who was in hospital and had broken his leg and how much I gleaned from the conversation with him. The, The accusation here about doctors is that we can, if we're not careful, just view illness purely as a biological phenomenon that requires medical intervention. Whereas a patient will often see their illness in the context of their whole life. It's like, well, you know, now that I fractured my leg, will I be able to play football again? That kind of thing. And it's interesting. um, I've I've certainly met patients before who don't care a a hoot about that. They just want to find the best fix for their problem. But still, the context of illness is important. So those first two divides are the relation to mortality, the context of illness. The third is beliefs beliefs about disease causality and that one is fascinating because obviously and you know it's very topical with COVID-19 people have different views on why they have become ill and that in itself can sometimes lead to conflict because the doctor has their view on why the person has become ill and the patient themselves has their view on why they've become ill And the last divide is what she refers to as shame, blame and fear. And sometimes patients might be embarrassed about revealing very intimate aspects of their lives, you know, because it makes them fearful or vulnerable and they they worry that the doctor might judge them. And equally, the doctor might find it difficult to broach these subjects. It's fascinating in general practice because obviously we deal with the same population over many years and that particular one can crop up because after many years of knowing someone you know them so well that th- there can be an awkwardness if there is something that is intimate or embarrassing but really at the end of the day I, I think just acknowledging that can be helpful sometimes what I do is is if it is something difficult to broach I, I will su- in the middle of a consultation say Look, I'm really sorry I'm going to have to ask you some really personal questions is that okay Asking permission in a consultation is really good practice, I think, because it means you're not making assumptions about the patient and also you're not going to overstep boundaries. So if in doubt, I'll always try and do that. And so with those four divides, hand in hand with that, goes John Lorna's seven C's. I love these. I'm I'm not going to spend too long on them. I'll post a link to it. But they are curiosity, context, complexity, challenge, caution, and care. And again, they're very similar in terms of being curious, making sure that you explore things with the patient. And also challenging their beliefs when appropriate. And and probably the most important one for me is the last one, which is care. Because if the doctor doesn't genuinely care about the patient, then, you know, in, in my book, it's just never going to work. That relationship is is, is broken from outset, and, and I think that's really, really important. Another aspect of uh, narrative medicine is, is the metaphors that people use to describe symptoms. I, I remember years ago, I changed someone's blood pressure tablets because they felt they were making them tired and when I asked this chap how he felt on the new tablets he said I feel like a lion and uh, and I remember sort of saying to him oh that that's good then right and and it always interests me just the words that people use to describe things or occasionally people who are perhaps feeling depressed might say oh you know I feel like I've got a black cloud over my head all the time and these are really interesting phrases because they come from our subconscious mind I mean no one actually has a black cloud over their head all of the time but if someone's using that language the challenge is trying to work out what they mean from what they're saying and occasionally if you enter the conversation and, and use the same kind of language and say to the patient for example okay well what can we do to make that cloud move away you, you're kind of in their world it sounds a bit wacky and a bit woo But um, actually, you know, conversing with someone, communicating with someone, using their metaphors and their language can actually be very useful. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about narrative medicine, about the power of language. It's such a broad topic that, you know, so many things enter my mind. I remember when I first... Went to work in Tottenham um, years ago. A place I still miss, and um, absolutely loved my time there. There's a big um, Greek Cypriot population there, and a Turkish population. And the first phrases I came to grips with in in the the Greek language and, and the Turkish language was to do with pain. So I remember, you know, um, "ponis," you know, means "does it hurt" in in Greek. And aria is the word for pain in Turkish. And it was fascinating because I, you know, managed to learn some, you know, pigeon phrases, which which just really helped me connect to, to patients a bit better. Anyway, before I get carried away on another digression, I wanted to just end, really, on something called Pragmatics. So earlier on, um, I mentioned that the black cloud over your head and how constantly when we're in any conversation between two people, you're constantly working out what someone means from what they say. And this is what is known as the study of pragmatics. It's a a sort of a subfield of linguistics. And it's all about what one person says and what the other person hears or receives. And it's become muddied in recent years because of things like emojis, because before emojis existed, no one really kind of even knew what what it was like to use them. But now that we use them so often, we know, for example, that the one with, you know, the smiley face with tears coming out of their eyes is someone who's laughing a lot. So I use that one quite a lot. But pragmatics for me is quite key in language and conversation and particularly in a healthcare setting. I'm going to give you some examples of them, and you'll see what I mean. So one example of a pragmatic, and and I'll post a link to this, is when someone simply says, how are you? Now, when someone says that to you, you make an assumption that they're just asking it to be polite, so you sort of say, I'm fine, how are you? You don't give them every single detail about your life or your health status well at least I hope you don't um, and that's an example of a pragmatic so you're kind of making an assumption on what that question might mean another one may be something like oh I've got three daughters now if someone says that they, that they have three daughters then you assume they don't actually have four they've they've just got the three daughters they may have sons but you kind of assume they haven't got more than three do you see what I mean? So, again, it's one of these assumptions that you make, not because the person's trying to mislead you, but unless you're in a court of law or you're being interrogated by a barrister, um, you would have no real reason to ask that person whether they only had three daughters. The The one that makes me laugh is when you see free cash above a you know, cash point or ATM. And, of course, What it means is that they don't charge you to take cash out. They're not actually giving you free cash, but you get what I mean. And I learnt my lesson early on in medicine about pragmatics when I was a student. And when you're a a medical student, you have the language of medicine in one half of your brain and you're trying to speak people's language with the other half. And I remember in the run-up to finals, I was practising cranial nerve examinations. And this is where you do all of the tests clinically at the bedside, to check the 12 nerves that come out of the back of the brain. And that means giving the patient lots of instructions. And in order to examine, occasionally medical students and doctors will bark orders effectively at the patient. And so you might say, close your eyes for me or grit your teeth. And I remember I said to this lady, show me your teeth. And it was a bad instruction because you can, to test that particular nerve, get someone to smile Uh, or you can get them to clench their teeth. But I was being clever and I said, can you show me your teeth? And I remember she bent over to her bedside cabinet and pulled out her dentures and held them up to me. And I, I fell about laughing with the rest of my team, A, because she was just so delightful, but B, because I'd given her the wrong instruction. And that's an example of where a pragmatic can go wrong. And although I'm someone who loves metaphors and the richness of language, I think there is something about clarity, particularly when it comes to medicine, so that both parties really understand what's been said and what's going on. So I hope that's given you some context in terms of why language is so important, its beauty, its pitfalls as well. And I'd love to hear your stories about good examples of language use or total cock-ups as well, ones that made you laugh. I'm going to end with a quote, as I always do. I absolutely love this. And for me, this is the absolute essence of language and what it means and why it's so central to being human. And it's by the late Nelson Mandela. If you talk to a man in a language he understands, that goes to his head. If you talk to him in his own language, that goes to his heart. And circling back to that boy I was talking about earlier, that's probably what actually helped him open up in the end. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. As I said to you This is going to be the last episode for a while now because I'm going to take a break over Christmas and um, the first week at least of the new year. I will be back. I really love listening to your feedback and all the comments that people leave on my Instagram page or Facebook page. And there's always Twitter, of course. I also said I would mention my book and this is one of the reasons I'm taking a bit of a break. I have got a book that is coming out in January 23. It is around health and well-being and i'm not going to give the title away but i'm really excited about it but i actually need to write it and submit it um, in the early part of next year so i'm going to be busy doing that Uh, more about that later on meanwhile listen do take care please stay in touch let me know your stories and anecdotes about language in particular and as always please let me know if you've got any topics that you want me to cover i'm always open to that But in the meantime, until we connect again, I do hope that you have a lovely festive season, whatever it is that you're doing, full of good times and genuine happiness. Do take care.